Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome back to a 1% Better interview. And it has been a while since I've actually said that as an intro, but uh, it's really good to be able to say it again. And looking forward to sharing this one and new episodes in the, the near future. I've been on a little bit of an unplanned break, but always kind of knew that um, the the weekly cadence might stutter a little bit when uh, my new role started, and uh, that has been the case, but it's always been my plan to get things going again, and in the interim period, thankfully, we've been able to put out some episodes around the, the book club, which are getting some good numbers of people checking out and listening and and enjoying. So that was useful to keep some stuff coming out. But yeah, 1% better is back and it's better, hopefully. Uh, Definitely this episode is one of the best ones. But as of the time of recording this, the website should be just about updated and new and clean and fresher looking. So check that out if you haven't already noticed it being a bit more streamlined and maybe a bit more responsive. The one I had done myself three or four years ago and added to over time was just uh, beginning to break down a little bit. So I got another professional involved and did some nice work on that. So check it out. Let me know what you think. I actually also have added a coaching page in there, a website separate to that, um, because as you might know, that's some of the work I do outside of the day job and love doing that helping folks in their personal or professional endeavors. So if that's something of interest, check it out, get in touch. Happy to chat about that. But this is all about 1% better and all about sharing stories from very interesting people and hearing from them on their journeys and lessons they have to share. And this one is an absolute cracker from that perspective. It's with a lady called Annie Duke, and she's an author, corporate speaker, consultant, all focused on decision making. I actually found out about Annie. I was reading a Charles Duhigg book um, a few years ago, The Power of Habit, and discovered Annie's story in there, which was quite fascinating. You should check that out. Um, but she became a world champion, female champion poker player. And within poker, obviously, there's a lot of decision making needed. And we dived into some of that and a whole lot more besides. She's given up poker a number of years ago and focuses now purely on decision-making consultancy and talking with leaders from all over the world around how to become better at that. And she shares a lot of really free insights in uh, this episode around how to make better decisions. She has a book coming out around about now, How to Decide Simple Tools, for making better choices. And we talked about a lot of those tools. We talked about bias a lot as well and how decision-making is influenced massively by bias and biases that we have unconsciously in many ways. And and again, we try to make it sort of in a usual style uh, practical that you can take away some things from the discussion and put into practice in your own decision-making processes, which... Uh, we have a lot of them going on all the time. So fascinating interview. Annie has been on Letterman and she's 
very, very well known in the US and in the, the globally from not only the poker perspective, but in the work and decision making she has come out with over the last while. So definitely worth checking out her website and also her new book. And after, obviously, after listening to this episode, do all of those things. There's a link in the show notes for all of that. And yeah, it's good to be back and hopefully we'll have some more episodes in the coming weeks. Um, one piece of advice that was given to me uh, by a, another podcaster about a year ago was it's okay to take breaks, you know, you're you're your own boss in this endeavor. And thankfully, I feel okay about doing that considering there's about 180 episodes out already that you can check back and listen to. And sometimes listening to a podcast a second time around or even a third time around is when it really starts to stick. I know that's what I do when I really want to dive deep into conversations and take some notes and put it into action. So hopefully you can enjoy some of those back catalogs and and the new ones coming in the next few weeks as well. So there you go, a long-winded intro, but uh, felt it was a little bit overdue. Hope you enjoy this episode with the great Annie Duke and... Take care, best of luck, and enjoy. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better, and this one is coming out around the time of middle of October, around the time of the release of the book that uh, I'm privileged to talk to the author of uh, in, in this conversation. Her name is Annie Duke. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. No, it's brilliant to have you on the show, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about this book, your previous book, and and everything else that comes up in between. And as I was putting together my rough questions, uh, I'm big into decision making myself, probably not to the level you are, because you've obviously wrote a couple of books about it, and been a lot more successful at it than probably I have. But I was reading, it says in a, a, a part of the bio uh, about decision making is a teachable skill and I'm fascinated is it a skill or a competency and have you thought about the difference well so let me start with I'm going to start with just a question out of just to understand how do you view the difference between the two of them yeah for me a skill is something that's very very repeatable and it almost becomes um, automatic in a way and <clears throat> a competency is something you kind of develop over a period of time that that can can change you know and can evolve and can grow so I guess the skill almost doesn't change so if it's like um, the skill of of writing my name for example but whereas a competency there's there's it's a dynamic in a way and I think about emotional intelligence and some of the like self-awareness almost as a competency so just a yeah, so so uh, thank you for clarifying that because I think that people have different definitions of those two. So by those definitions, it's actually both. Um, there's a competency in the sense of, you know, sort of an awareness of what type of decision that you're facing, uh, applying different tools to novel problems and understanding that. Uh, there's a lot, lot that has to do with kind of understanding uh, your own emotions and the impact and how you kind of deal with that in terms of your decision making and so on and so forth. So that would go sort of in the competency category, but there are all sorts of skills that you need to develop in order to be able to actually have that competency. Like I would kind of think about it in the way that I think about tennis. There are certain skills. I have to be able to 
hit a good forehand. Obviously, I need to be able to do that in order to play tennis well. But the overall game of tennis, you know, how, how do I actually play that game go into the competency category? Um, and so, so decision making really fits just like that into terms of tennis. There are things like hitting forehands that have to do with particular skills that you need to develop. But then obviously you need to know like, when can I be agile? When can I not be agile? How do I apply these skills to novel situations, for example, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. No, good, good example. And, and tennis is probably in our for, for, uh, the forefront of my thoughts at the moment. The US Open is on. I'm watching a lot yes. of it. So go, go, go I'm ahead. a big tennis fan. So that is why I use tennis as an example quite often. Me, me too. We can definitely probably uh, go off on tangents on our, our tennis interests there as well. So decision making then. When did you realize or first start to understand that you're pretty good at this? Uh, you know, you're good at making decisions. Things are, are working out here. Can you maybe give me some backstory around that? Okay, well, so so first of all, w- one thing I want to just be clear is that I, I don't want to say like, sorry, hold on. <coughs> I had to cough. Um, I don't want to say, like, I, I don't want to say like I'm, good at decision making in this in the sense that I don't want people to think that that anybody is like a perfect decision maker. I would not purport that I would. The thing about decision making that's so wonderful is that very small changes like being slightly better really will have big impacts like actually compounding interest. And so what I'm always looking for is like, how can I how can I be a little, little bit better at this? Like, how can I improve the decision that I might might make? by applying a really good process so so that you know the decision could be 3% or 5% better than it otherwise would be it's not going to be perfect and the reason why you know there's a lot of reasons why it can't be perfect a lot of it has to do with just limited information but i do want to get that across that um, don't be so hard on yourself if your decisions are a little bit better than they otherwise would have been it will actually impact your life in a really really positive way let me just put that as an aside. Um, so in terms of myself, I, you know, I think there's this, just this kind of like evolution that this very weird sort of zigzaggy path that I took in life uh, ends up sort of delivering to me in terms of these particular decision skills. So I started off my adult life thinking I was going to become a professor. I was actually in a PhD program at, at the University of Pennsylvania at a National Science Foundation Fellowship. And I was really broadly in the, in the cognitive science uh, world. And, you know, what, what, what cognitive science is really trying to explore is how do we as beings process the world and sort of build models of the world around us because uh, we don't really know like what's true of the world. And like, here's a really simple, here's a really simple example of that. You know, we, we have these shortcuts in the way that we talk about things. Like we say that grass is green, but the grass itself is not green. It's, it's a, it has a surface that reflects light off of it such that when it hits our eyes and then gets processed by our brains, we perceive that to be a green color. So um, that's kind of what cognitive science is exploring. And then broadly within that world, you would be thinking about learning and decision-making will be going into that world. And um, it's very interdisciplinary. So you're thinking, you know, you're talking to computer scientists and neurologists and so on and so forth. So, so I was, I was doing that. And I was specifically studying uh, learning and particular how, how to 
children learn their first language. So there's a lot of decision-making that goes into that. And right at the end of, of that, it, like as I was literally going out to interview for my professorships, I'd been um, grappling with an illness uh, that caused me to have to basically take a year off before I went out and became a professor. So I'd done five years of, of graduate work. Um, and during that year, my, you know, I did, honestly, like I needed money. Uh, and I couldn't, you know, I, was, I wasn't looking to change careers. So I needed something temporary. And my brother suggested that maybe I should try my hand at playing poker. He, he was already, it wasn't as weird as it sounds. He was already a professional poker player. But he said, why don't, why don't you try playing some poker and see how that goes? And so I started playing poker as something I was going to do like in the meantime before I became a professor. Um, and there's a variety of reasons, but, you know, I ended up staying and, and continuing to play poker. And it, it's just this very interesting, like very, very high stakes, real world instantiation of the the things that I've been studying in graduate school. Like, how do you actually make decisions? How do you learn about the world in these very noisy environments when there's like luck involved and lots of hidden information? You have to do these things very quickly. They have, they have real outcomes. Like, you really have skin in the game. And how do you kind of like approach that problem? And it, it felt like this really interesting, almost like a laboratory for studying the things that I was really excited about when I was in graduate school. Um, and so I stayed and in the meantime, sort of turned into 18 years, but then about eight years into that. So when I started playing poker, it like wasn't on television and the internet. So this was like the, bef before people were like, Oh, I'm watching it on ESPN. So people were quite confused by the shift that I made. But in 2000, I think it was 2002, um, uh, just by accident, I ended up getting asked to speak to a groups of group of options traders. Um, and what I was asked to speak to them about was how poker might inform uh, the way that they might think about risk. And this was this first moment, you know, sort of eight years absent academia, that I started thinking about, like, how could I express what I thought was a really interesting conversation that, like, cognitive science and, and poker might have with each other uh, in terms of decision making. Um, and I started thinking about that really explicitly because obviously these were things that I was having to grapple with in order to be successful for those eight up to that point, those eight years in poker, I had to have actually thought about this and actually figured out a way to learn in this environment and, and make good decisions. Um, and that was when I started thinking about that in like a much more explicit way. Um, and then for 10 years, I, I ended up doing a lot of talks on that. And I started consulting in that space and thinking about how we could think about these two things, like really improving decision-making. Uh, and then in 2012, I, I left poker and it ended up really just concentrating on the consulting work, speaking. And then I, I wrote Thinking and Bets on this. So it's really sort of been an evolution of these different backgrounds that I have coming to sort of inform the way that I think about decisions from a lot of different angles that I think has helped me to really see it in a way that maybe someone without this very strange, windy, background would like see decisions so it's a kind of a long answer but it's mm -hmm. it's sort of a long and windy road you know yeah no de definitely and it's, it's fascinating oh, a couple of things i just picked up as you were talking through it there obviously you mentioned your brother being a professional player as well so you know nature versus nurture here is there some something in the dna in your family that makes you brilliant decision makers i presume he didn't do a undergraduate in <laughs> cognitive uh, psychology um, yeah, 
so yeah, I would say actually my sister is a pretty good decision maker as well. Um, yeah, I mean, th- I think that this is something that's really actually important to think about is what we all sort of have naturally natural differences. Like if you think about the big five, right? Like open-mindedness and conscientiousness and, you know, neuroticism and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we all have sort of different tendencies. Like we're all born sort of like on one end of those traits or, or the other or somewhere in the middle. And I think when it comes to the things that can really help you to be a great decision maker, I think it's it, that's also true that there's a distribution, you know, and some people are kind of naturally more at the kind of the top end of that distribution and some are more in the middle and some are down at the lower end of the distribution. The thing that, that I want to make clear, and this is kind of the point that I was trying to open up with, is that if I can shift you a little bit on that distribution, like even if you naturally are maybe a little bit less open-minded and open-mindedness is very important for good decision-making, but let's say that you're naturally less open-minded. If I can shift you a tiny bit, like I don't need to get you to be like, you know, a, a, a Tibetan monk, like the Dalai Lama or something who's really open-minded to everything and trying to stand in other people's shoes all the time. But if I can get you to, to move a little bit on it, it's going to have a really huge impact. So, yeah, I mean, clearly, if you look at the kids in my family, um, I think that we sort of were naturally sort of more in this in the range of people who maybe could could face a game like poker and be pretty good decision makers about it for sure. Uh, But I think that what that says is that that's why it's so important to teach these skills. Right. It's why it's so important to teach people like how might I make great decisions? Because the better they are, it doesn't matter where you sit on that distribution or what your natural tendencies are. Where, If you can move a little bit in the right direction, it's going to have a huge impact on your life. Mm. Yeah, and that ties nicely in with the name of the podcast, 1% Better. It's all about you know incremental improvement. So I think that, that matches well. When you started playing po- poker, how 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 good were you off the bat and how quickly did you improve? Just interested on, on your rate of improvement there. Yeah. So I, th- I think this is, that's actually such a good question because the answer is I was very good, but relative to the people I was playing against. And I think that this is actually a really important concept, right? You can think about decision-making sort of in an absolute sense. And in an absolute sense, I was terrible at poker. And in fact, in an absolute sense, I am still terrible about at poker. And the reason that I'm still terrible at poker is because poker is really hard. It's very complicated. There's tons of hidden information. Like, can't see the other player's cards. There's a whole bunch of luck. It's very hard to unravel at the end of a hand, like why things happen the way they are. You're constantly having to build models of your opponents. Not, not I'm, I, I'm not a mind reader, right? So like, I've got to figure out like, what's my opponent going to do? And what it's just like, it's this game that like, you know, it's that classic thing where you sort of think you know a lot about it at the beginning. And then as you get better and better, you start to realize, like, I know nothing about this game. But the good news about poker is that it's always relative to the people that you're making decisions against. I think it's a very important lesson for life. So when I started playing, I was playing pretty low stakes. And I was playing against people. I actually started playing in Montana, of all places. And it was against people who were like retired and they were, you know, they were retired ranchers or whatever. And they, you know, were looking for something to do during the day. And none of them were trying to be world champion poker players. They were enjoying themselves, some more so than others. Um, And I had somebody who was 
world champion, like world-class coaching me. So compared to the world of poker players that exist, what was it? Was I great? No, but I had an amazing mentor, amazing coach. And I was playing against people who honestly, like they, they weren't, they weren't trying to be world champions. They were, they were kind of as good as they were, and they probably weren't going to get much better. Um, and I had the advantage of, which is true of a lot of players, they thought they were a lot better than they were, which is always really helpful. So right off the bat, I was winning. But that, that was because relative to the people I was sort of playing this game against, I was better than they were. But I was terrible. So I, it's sort of a dual answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense, though. And I think, as you said, the, the absolute part, absolute of anything, we're probably not you know one percent good at whatever that absolute might be um and i don't believe in perfection either so that's probably unattainable um how quickly as you were you know moving through the career of of poker and starting to do the conversations and consulting did you start kind of stepping back and creating content uh and, and writing you know approaches and rules and just putting something together saying there's there's so much in this that can be transferable yeah, so that that really actually started happening in 2002. Prior to that, the wor- work that I had been doing in poker was really mainly for myself. Uh, and the people that I was, I, I kind of had like a group of people that I would workshop their hands and my hands with. And we had a few, like, for some of the things that we were doing, like we had some simple computer simulations that could kind of start to help us understand the game a little bit better. But I wasn't really thinking about the transferability at that point. It wasn't until I got asked to speak to this group in 2002 that I really started to think about what are the things that really poker exposes kind of on both sides of the coin, the ways that our decision-making can go really wrong, the way that our ability to learn from experience can really go sideways. Uh, even in even in an environment where you're getting lots and lots of feedback, which would be poker, right? Hands hands go very fast, and you find out like, oh, I won the hand, I lost the hand. It was about two minutes, but it really exposed like a lot of these cognitive biases, the the, the ways that people don't learn from experience well. Um, a lot of stuff about like what is the effect of emotion on decisions and and that kind of thing, because obviously it's it's very high stakes, and you're losing money, and that can cause people to be quite upset. Um, so it, it kind of exposed the cracks in our decision making in a really interesting way. And then the other thing that it does is it kind of it shows you if you want to have any kind of longevity, how do I start to repair those cracks? Like, how do I think about how do I become a better learner? How how do I think about the get, you know, dealing with the emotional impact, you know, of losing a hand at the table and how that might affect my play? How do I see myself more objectively? How do I see my opponents more objectively? Um, so I started to sort of think about those two sides of the coin, you know, as I was going into that very first talk. And interestingly enough, I was asked to talk about risk. And what I actually talked about was uh, emotional control, which I thought was actually the more interesting thing to talk about with risk, right? Which is how much risk you're willing to take on uh, toggles, depending on what kind of emotional state you're in. and so. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you all you want about like, uh, you know, some some like the Kelly criterion, which you know would be just like a pretty simple mathematical tool to try to calculate out risk. But I thought what was much more interesting is how are we dealing with that in these environments when emotion can really get in the way? 
of our ability to actually manage our risk well, and it starts to distort things. Um, and you know, and I think that that's sort of been a theme that that for me, when you get down to sort of the basic mathematical equations of of making decisions, I, I feel like okay, I can write that equation out for you, right? The the thing that I'm more interested in is if you know that equation, are you executing on it? And I think that that's the thing that we're really bad at is the actual execution. And that's what I've really been obsessed with ever since then. And I never stopped. Like after that first talk, I realized, oh my gosh, there's such a deep place to be exploring here. Like this is really a rich environment to be thinking about. And I never stopped. And that's really resulted in these books that I've written. Mm. No, very interesting. And so you mentioned bias. And I want to maybe dig into a little bit about that because I know there's sections in in the book around bias um and i suppose one of the most common biases that we aren't aware of maybe when we're making decisions and is there a way i think you talk about dismantling them if there's a an approach anyone could could take from listening to this that could be useful oh my gosh there's so many um so let me talk about two main ones uh and i can actually sort of give you a, a, a let me i'll tell you a little story that will help to to put these two things together but there's this broad problem that I talk about, which is the paradox of experience. And I hit it, hinted at it a second ago. Um, and here, the paradox of experience is basically, we know that in order to become better decision makers, we have to learn from experience. You have to make decisions and see how they turn out. And then, you know, you, hopefully you learn something about that and then you, you, you become a better decision maker. So uh, we know that we need experience. It's necessary in order to learn. But the paradox of experience is the individual experience that you have is actually very likely to interfere with your learning. And it's because of a couple of biases. The first one is resulting. Uh, And basically what resulting is, is that uh, like if I were to say to people, what's your best decision of the last year? And I've done this a million times with a gazillion different people. Um, And I encourage people listening right now to take a second, think about what your best result of the last year is. I got it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, got best my... decision of the last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got your best decision of the last year. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you: Did it work out well? So far, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and if I ask you, take a second. What's your worst decision of the last year? Got it. Worst decision of the last year. Strangely enough, nothing is jumping straight into my mind right now. But um, well, that's a usual thing too, by the way. <laughs> it's harder for people to think about that. Um, but but, uh, but if you me. did think of something, mm-hmm. yeah, and did it work out poorly? Uh fifty. It was medium, five out of ten, sort of. Yeah. Thing. So this is basically what happens: is when I ask people, "What's your best decision?" They it always worked out well, and what's your worst decision? It pretty much always worked out poorly. This is the resulting problem is that we know that you can go through green lights and go through fine. You can go through green lights and you can get an accident. You can go through red lights and you can get an accident. You can go through red lights and get through just fine. And this is because there's, there's just an influence of luck. Like there's luck in how things turn out. And then the other thing is that there's stuff you don't know. You know what you know at the time of the decision, but sometimes you find things out afterwards. So it, there, there isn't this really, there's actually quite a loose connection between the quality of the outcome that you observed, did something work out poorly or well, and the quality of the decision. You can go through the exact same decision process in hiring a candidate, 
And one of them can work out well and one of them can work out poorly. And what we tend to do is think that when, when uh, that we end up firing the candidate within the first year, it was a terrible decision, even though the process was identical. And when the candidate works out well, we're like, oh, we're brilliant. So that's the resulting problem. And then the hindsight bias problem uh, is basically that we feel like the outcome that we got was inevitable. It was the only thing that could have occurred. And then what results from that is that we think that we should have known. I, sh- I should have somehow known that this, this job candidate was going to be horrible and I was going to have to fire them in the first year. And then you get this thing on top of it, which is called memory creep. Um, which is that we start to believe we did know it beforehand. So, you know, th- one of the best examples of this that I, I ever uh, witnessed was in a grocery store. This Somebody was speaking with an accent and this man says to this woman, um, oh, are you, I think she said, oh, he said, oh, are you Italian? And she said, no, I'm Greek. And he said, I knew it. So that's a very good example of hindsight bias. It's like, no way you did it. You asked if they were Italian. Like, what are you talking about? So. Um, so what happens is that because of this, when we have an experience, when we when something happens in our life, good or bad, we tend to take very bad lessons from it because of hindsight bias and resulting. So I can give you this on a very big stage. So did you follow the 2016 election between Trump and Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So when... You know, I've sort of spent the past three, three and a half, so uh, almost four years listening to people talk about how Clinton's strategy as it related to Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania was the worst, horrible decision making as it related to those three states. And that, and then I'll hear people say, and of course, like everybody knew this at the time. I don't know why she wasn't listening to people. Clearly, everybody was screaming this from the mountaintops. In fact, uh, I wanted to talk about this and I, I pitched this idea to an editor that, that maybe people didn't actually know. And they said to me, no, uh, that's not a good piece because I knew it at the time and uh, all my friends were talking about it. So, so anyway, I did a Google search because I was like, huh, like everybody's taking this lesson from this that, that the Rust Belt was really screwed up and that everybody kind of knew it at the time and she ignored it. And it seems like this is a very important thing to get right. Because it matters for the next, you know, for future elections in terms of how you might decide to strategize around those. So I, I just did a Google search and I was like, let me just search like Clinton and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, and hundreds of articles. I mean, there's so much that's been written about it. But the weird thing is that the first article appears on November 9th, which happens to be the day after the election. Now, what we know about presidential campaigns is that uh, I don't think there's anything where the decision-making isn't more crowdsourced, right? Like every political observer and pundit and strategist and like all the data scientists from Silicon Valley are weighing in and like seeing what their opinion is. So if this was such a bad choice to be spending a higher percentage of your time in Arizona and Florida and New Hampshire and North Carolina, as opposed to the Rust Belt, some, a lot of people would have been writing about it at the time but nobody was. So what that suggests to me is that maybe it wasn't such a bad decision after all, at least given the information that everybody had, which was the polls. And the polls didn't have a systematic polling error because the national polling came out about right. Florida came out as a toss-up and New Hampshire came out as a toss-up. Like most of the states seem to be polling pretty dead on. And what we know is there was a polling error in these three states. 
And that's where you can see this problem with like hindsight bias and resulting. You can't know it's a polling error until the vote has been taken. So there was no way for people to identify these three states as a problem until November 9th. But yet we all we all sort of like agree as a national sort of fever dream that her decision, her strategy was horrible. But if it was so horrible, someone would have said about something about it beforehand. So so think about how this is happening to you and your life in like little ways every single day that's clouding your ability to actually take the right lessons from your experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's for what comes up for me there is kind of the concept of a like a lagging indicator and a lead indicator almost where mm-hmm. where you're using the lagging indicator to show you what what's happened. Like, you know, COVID at the moment, the lagging indicators are the, the the number of deaths effectively because it takes two or three weeks for for that potentially to happen even and, longer yeah. yeah but but when but in real time then what should somebody be looking out for to to help them make that more informed decision that's such a good question so uh so there, there a variety of things is is the answer so let's try to just focus maybe on some of the heavy lifts um so what you can kind of see is happening with resulting in hindsight bias is that when you actually make a decision, right? At the moment you make a decision, there's a bunch of ways it could turn out, right? So like if you take the Hillary Clinton example, she lost by a total of, I think, uh, less than 80,000 votes across those three states, very small margin. So we can, we can really like quickly imagine like, well, she could have won those states. She could have won Florida, right? Florida was really a tiny margin as well. Um, And then we'd all be talking about what a great campaign strategy she had, right? Like you could see how that could shift so quickly. So when you make a decision, something as simple as like, I'm going to order a dish, you know, to eat. Uh, It could be great. It could be kind of mediocre. It could be horrible. You could get food poisoning. Um, You know, it could be Nirvana. Uh, same thing with like going out on a date or picking a job or whatever. There's all these different ways that the future could unfold given any choice you make. But what happens is that once we know how it turned out, it's like we take this cognitive chainsaw, right? Like we rev it up and we just lop off all those other branches of the tree. They're just all gone. And all we can see is the thing that actually happened. And that gives us the clue to how to deal with this. We have to pick those branches back off the ground and start to put them back on. So the first thing is when you're looking at a decision in retrospect, you have to start doing what's called counterfactual thinking. I have to think about what are what are the different ways that the world actually could have turned out that are not the way that this turned out. And I can do that by thinking about similar decisions. I can do that by thinking about what, you know, for this decision, like what are what are the ways it could have turned out? And I want to sort of get those back on the tree. Because what I want to do is contextualize the outcome that actually occurred so that I can understand there were all sorts of other ways it could have turned out. And what I want to be able to see was, was it like really likely that this, that this bad thing would occur? Um, and in the case of Clinton, we know because of that razor thin margin that, it, you know, maybe it was really likely or maybe it wasn't. But uh, it seems like from all the models she was about 30% to lose the election. And so we kind of know she was more likely than not to win, at which point we can go back and say, well, it, it seems like given the information, it actually wasn't such a bad decision. So now what we can do is we can say, if, if that's what we're trying to do in retrospect, we're trying to get this into context. The more that we do that work in advance, the better off we are. 
And that's like incredibly important to do that in advance. So what we want to do when we're facing a decision is basically think about for any option that we're considering, what are the different ways it could turn out? What are my preferences for the, in other words, like how much do, do some of these things advance me toward the goal that I'm trying to achieve or advance me away from it? And then how likely are those things to occur? And what that broadly gets me to be able to do is to say for the reasonable ways that this could turn out, because I don't, you know, I don't want you to think about a meteor hitting the earth. That's not right. We should think about the reasonable ways that things are going to turn out. What is the upside potential of this option and the downside potential? And then I can compare that to other options that I've done that same process with and notice what that's doing is in advance, it's getting you to think about what these different branches of the tree are. Now, the second sort of thing that I just want to layer on that is to understand that when you do that kind of siloed by yourself, it will never be as good as if you can get other people's perspectives on it and do some uh, separately do some exploration of what's true of the world in general. So let me just start with the second piece, what's true of the world in general. Um, if you're thinking about starting a business, uh, you know, let's say like before COVID, you were thinking about starting a restaurant um, and you're thinking about the restaurant succeeds, it's a big hit or the restaurant fails in the first year. And we'll just think about those as the options. And you think that it's like 90% to succeed, to succeed. It would be really good for you to go and look at well, how often do restaurants actually succeed that start? Like how, how many of them are still operating after the first year? And it turns out that only 40% of, of them are operating in the first year. So it's really helpful for you to know that sort of get outside of your own mind uh, and your own hopes and desires and your own belief in your uh, abilities and your own overconfidence and all of these other things and just go look at well how often do restaurants succeed in general so that's kind of the first thing and and that would be called look, going and looking for base rates figuring out what the reference class is like what are decisions that look like this and I could go learn something about those another base rate would be like uh, what percentage of couples get divorced within the first 10 years of marriage and you know you would want to sort of think about that as to whether you want to have a prenuptial agreement those kinds of things um, so that's called the base rate. And then the other thing that you really want to do is get other people's perspectives. And the reason that you want to get other people's perspectives is because very often other people see things more clearly than you do. So like a simple example of that would be, and I'm sure everybody can relate to this, like if you're sitting and listening to a friend and they're talking about how the last 10 people they went on dates with are like total jerks. And they're just complaining about their bad luck. And I can't believe this. Like, why is everybody such a jerk? And I can't find any good people because, ever, you know, I keep dating these jerks. And I think we've all been in those conversations where when you're sitting from the out, on the outside of that and you're listening to your friend talk, in your head, you're going, maybe you're picking jerks. And that goes through all of our heads. But when we're the friend who's dating the jerks, it, that doesn't occur to us. Right. We just think like somehow these jerks are coming our way and we're not thinking like, eh, maybe I'm picking a jerk and I should do something about that. So basically what I'm trying to get at in terms of like, make sure that you're thinking about what's true of the world generally. Like what are these base rates and reference classes and stuff like that? And then also try to get other people's um, perspectives on your situation. How would somebody else view my situation uh, is really 
we can sum that up by saying what we want to do is get out of the inside view and get to the outside view. And this is something that, that Kahneman talks a lot about in, um, in thinking fast and slow. So the inside view is just the world from our own perspective, uh, driven by the things that we would like to be true of ourselves in the world. And that tends to be a pretty distorted view of, of life. Um, but the outside view is the world from outside of ourselves, the way that somebody else would view our situation or what's true of the world in general. So what we want to do is make sure that as part of this process of mapping out, you know, if I choose this option, what are the ways it could turn out? How likely are these things to occur? It would be very good to bring in perspectives that are outside of ourselves in order to improve that process. And that helps discipline all that bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, I think it's an NLP technique, perceptual positioning, where you're sitting in other people's shoes or other people's chairs and trying to look at it. And it, it, as you said, I wrote down while you were talking about that, it's very easy for me to help somebody make a decision. But when it's my decision, it's it's much harder because you have that, um, obviously, that connection to it and it, it impacts your life a lot more. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, um, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from with that. You mentioned the word luck a few times during the conversation so far. What role... Does that play? How do you mitigate luck? How do you uh, how do you lean into luck? Is there any approaches that you can maybe discuss around that nugget? Uh, okay, so the first thing is that there's only two things that determine the way your life turns out: luck and uh, the quality of your decisions. That's it. Uh, so uh, luck, by definition, is something that you don't have control over. That's just definitely true. So that would be that would include people that you don't are not in your influence, right? So um, I can't control what Kim Jong-un does. So anything that happens as far as like North Korea and whether they like say lob, a, you know, like a, a um, missile at us or something like <laughs> that's gonna be a matter of luck to me. Also like when I was born, who I was born to, who my parents are, you know, whether I'm tall or short. Uh, those kinds of things, you know, as you said, like, as, do I sort of like naturally tend on the good scale of, de, you know, open-mindedness or decision-making or whatever, or down toward the, the left tail? Th those, those things are a matter of luck. I don't have control over them. And I, I hear people like say all the time, like, well, you make your own luck. But no, you don't. Uh, you make decisions that have different, you know, ways that luck could influence them. And so what they're really trying to say is that if you're a good decision maker, you increase the probability that luck will break your way as opposed to that it won't. It's like if I'm playing a hand of poker, I could play where I have a 55% chance of winning and a 45% chance of losing, or maybe I have an 80% chance of winning and a 20% chance of losing. Either way, the influence of luck on those two outcomes is identical. It's just that the percentage of times that that's going to go my way is higher. But that's because I made a decision. That's the thing that I have control over. So. That's, that's a really important thing. It's like, look, th that's it. Decisions and luck. So what does that mean about luck? Well, first of all, in order to be a good decision maker, you have to actually see luck for what it is. You have to embrace it. You have to lean into it. Because I have to be able to see very clearly uh, how often am I going to get an outcome that I like here? How often am I going to get an outcome that I don't like? And then I need to see that really clearly so I understand what it means if I get an, if I get an outcome that I don't like, like if I make a decision that's going to work out 95% of the time, it's not going to work out 5% of the time. By definition, I'm going to observe an outcome that I'm unhappy with. 
5% of the time. And I have no control over that. So you have to see it for what it is so that you can understand how can I be thinking about increasing the probability of good stuff happening and decreasing the probability of bad stuff happening. So it's all about like leaning into the fact that luck exists, accepting that you only have so much control over the outcomes that you're getting so that you can focus on the stuff that you do have control over and recognize that that's it. That's all you have. So don't, don't get so like, just sort of give luck like a humongous hug and be like, I embrace you so that you can focus on the stuff that you do have control of that really will make a difference in your life. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to quickly look around because I I interviewed, um, where's the book? The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. You know Barry Schwartz? Yeah, I actually reference him in my book, in this book, in How to Decide. He was yeah one of my favorite all time guests on the podcast and uh, and obviously we talked about choice and paradoxes and and luck and he he was a big believer in in luck having a huge role in his his journey his his life and um, and some great concepts in it and one yeah. thing that just- I mean, well by the way on that note think about my life like why did I become a poker player because I got sick and if I hadn't gotten sick I would have just gone along my merry way. I would- I've been a professor, right? But I got sick. And so I sort of shifted my way. And then by the way, that first talk that I gave in 2002, they didn't ask me to give that talk. They asked a friend of mine to give the talk. And my this friend of mine does not like pu- public speaking. And so this friend said, you know what? Annie used to teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Maybe you should have her do it. That was a completely a matter of luck. And even as I think about like, Thinking in Bats, right? Which came, it was a national bestseller. There's so much luck in that, right? I've got a, I, I released it at a time when that topic was of interest to people. It ended up in the hands of people that I had no influence over. So, for, for example, uh, a few months after the book came out, I think it was about six months after the book came out, uh, maybe five months, Mark Andreessen all of a sudden tweeted about my book. I didn't know him, I'd never met him. I, didn't, I had no influence over the fact that he ended up with this book in my hand and in his hands. And I certainly did not have an influence over whether he decided that it was worthwhile for him to tweet about it. Now, that's not to downplay the fact that in order for him to do that, I had to write a book that was good enough for him to feel like he wanted to do that. But there was so much luck in that. I think I sold 4,000 books that day, literally just based on the fact that he had tweeted about it, none of which I had any control over. So... I really am very sanguine about it. You know, I'm just like, "Eh, there's luck. And then I, I, you know, and then I try to focus on like, look, here's the thing that I can control. I I can write a book that I am passionate about, that I care about, that I love. And, and hopefully that's going to get communicated to my readers and, you know, maybe they'll like it if I, if I do a good job of that. But beyond that, it's like, you know, how much control do you have really? And it's, but that's okay because the, whatever little bit of control you have is going to just make a huge impact on your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And self-awareness obviously is very important to notice that sometimes it breaks your way, sometimes it, it doesn't. But as you said, you know, you can you can uh, stack the odds in your favor in some ways. Just around, around is it ever okay not to make a decision? So here's the deal. Uh, that's impossible. So not making a decision is making a decision. 
So basically what you're saying, you have to treat that as a new decision. In other words, do, do I want to go with the status quo or do I want to change course? Um, and I, I think that actually that the idea that it's possible to not make a decision actually causes a lot of havoc. So this is a bias. It's called omission versus commission bias. Um, commission would be making a decision and actually changing course. Uh, omission would be just sort of letting the status quo. So, so an example of an omission commission bias comes from uh, people who are anti-vaccine. So uh, the omission would be not making a decision to vaccinate, right? Just allowing things to sort of move down the road that they are. And there are certain risks associated with not vaccinating. Um, but then if you choose to vaccinate, it feels like you've made an active decision. So we're less tolerant of bad things coming from things that we feel like we made a new, like a changed course about than uh, things where we allowed the status quo to remain. So if our child gets sick from uh, something that we could have vaccinated for, it feels, uh, it feels less bad to us than if they were to get sick from a vaccine. Um, never mind what I just talked about, which is what are the probability of those things happening? What are the good outcomes and bad outcomes that come from the choice to not vaccinate or vaccinate? And that cost benefit analysis is like pretty clear that we would prefer to vaccinate. Uh, but it just has to do with this, you know, but I made a decision. I did something active in order to cause that to happen. So, so what happens is that we tend to be very tolerant of courses that do not have a really high probability of working out for us if we feel like we didn't make a choice about it. So here, here's a very simple example. I had a conversation with someone who was like 21. Um, they had maybe 22. They had just gotten out of college and they had spent a year in their first job, their first entry level job. And they were calling me up to ask like what I thought about them changing, quitting and, and moving on to another job. Uh, and it was a really interesting conversation. I think it was really telling to this point of making a decision or not making a decision. So they, I said, well, okay, so why do you want to change the job? Well, I'm really unhappy in this job. I hate it here. I hate this company. Okay. Well, you're entry level. So maybe that's reasonable. Um, what do you see kind of on the horizon for you as you look at uh, the jobs that you could get promoted into? Do you, do you feel like those would be happy for you? You know, that the culture of the company is good. You just don't like sort of the grunt work that you're doing right now. No, I don't like those people. I don't like the culture here. I don't, I don't want to be in this job. So as you can imagine, I'm a little confused at this point. So I said, okay, so what's kind of holding you back from changing jobs? And this was so telling. They said, what if I switch jobs and I spend another year learning a new company, learning the culture, learning how to like navigate my way around. And at the end of that year, I'm really unhappy. And this is classic, like omission versus commission bias. So, so I stopped and I said, I said to him, what are the chances that you're unhappy at the end of the year in the job that you're in? He said, basically 100%. I said, what are the chances you're unhappy at the end of a year in a new job? And he was like, I don't know, like maybe 40%. And I was like, doesn't that sound better? I understand that you might end up being happy, unhappy at the end of it, but now you have a chance to actually have something good to come from it. And clearly that's the better option. But he was so caught up in this difference between making a new decision or staying on the course that you are, that he couldn't 
Like he couldn't see that difference. So uh, don't ever think that you're not making a decision. You have to treat it as a new one. Do I want to stay on the path that I'm on or do I want to exit this road and go down a new path? And once you start viewing it that way, you can see those things much more clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. And it's, it's fascinating every time you're explaining you know the decisions there's always percentages and probabilities coming in you know naturally uh we probably all don't think like in in um you know out of 10 scores but i think it's a good way to kind of balance things out is there a value in being a positive thinker and hoping that your decisions are going to come out for the best and how how much influence might that have do you think so that's a, a great question um so let me just you can cut this back. You can cut this in if you want to, but, uh, or you can cut it out. I don't care. So, so let me just say something. Uh, I do talk in probabilities a lot, but every single person who's ever made a decision in their life was thinking about it probabilistically. They just weren't doing it explicitly because obviously when you choose the chicken versus the fish, what you're saying is I think there's a higher probability that I'm going to like the chicken. When you choose one job over the other, implicit in that decision is that you think it's going to has a higher probability of working out for you, so on and so forth. We can go down, like I choose a route to work. I think it's got a higher probability of getting me to work on time. Um, so I'm just a big fan of if it's implicit already in the decision, you should just make it explicit because it tends to sharpen your thinking about it. So just want to throw that in there. Um, yeah. So here's the short answer to your question about positive thinking. Uh, Chapter eight of my book is titled The Power of Negative Thinking. (laughs) So um, I'm not a huge fan of of the positive thinking literature. (laughs) Well, let me me, actually, so so let me explain just very quickly what what the the reason why I have some quibbles with it, enough quibbles to write a whole chapter about it. I think everybody should have positive goals. I agree. I pick amazing destination. Go to ba- Bali, you know, like don't spend your vacation in, in, uh, you know, uh, some place that like has an active volcano that's literally erupting, like go to Bali. Beautiful. Um, pick positive goals. I co- totally agree. It's the problem I have with, with this whole literature of the power of positive thinking is that what it's telling you is that, you have to think about succeeding along the way to that goal. And if you can, if you can imagine success along the way to the goal, that this is going to get you to actual success. So there's a few problems with that. Um, the, number one is that implied in that is if you imagine that you fail along the way to your goal, that that would cause failure. That's kind of number one. That, and I I think that that's not often implied, but often explicit. Like the the book, The Secret, is a pretty uh, kind of you know very kooky version of the power of positive thinking, which is like your thoughts actually attract good things or bad things to you. But you know, it's pretty. It's actually pretty standard in the positive thinking literature. Like you have to think positively in order to succeed, and uh, you know, negative negative thoughts will cause you to fail. I, I think that's kind of number one. Number two is that we're naturally positive thinkers. So I don't think that it's adding much to the mix in the sense of, you know, we're all kind of overconfident. We think we have more control over the future than we do. We generally think we're better than average. And m- most things that we think about, like, you know, decision-making would be one of them. 
Um, and so I, I think we're kind of naturally positive thinkers. So I, I'm not sure how encouraging that, you know, is, is helpful because we'd actually kind of like to pull that back, right? We don't want to think that our restaurant is 90% to succeed when it's only 40% to succeed. We'd like to have a more realistic view of the world. Um, but the last piece, and I think this is, is really the most important, is I don't know how you can succeed if you don't identify the obstacles that might lie in your path. In other words, if you aren't thinking, look, yes, I, I have a positive route, but I want to imagine if I were not to successfully navigate to that route, what are the ways in which I might have failed? Because if you can do that, if you can imagine the ways that you might fail, it lets you actually do something about it before you reach the failure. So it actually increases the probability of success. So the way I think about it is the difference between like a, an old paper map. Here's your destination. Here are all the roads. You sort of map out your route. and You're like, oh, this is cool. All the roads are clear. Versus an app like Waze, which is actually, as far as I'm concerned, like a total instantiation of the power of negative thinking, which is, oh, what is Waze doing for me? It's telling me that there's a road closure ahead of me and I should avoid it. It's telling me that there's traffic over here and perhaps I want to take another route or maybe I want to plan for more time because the traffic is heavy. And so now I need to leave more time. It's, it's, it's telling me that, uh, you know, um, that there's a, you know, an accident over here. It's telling, you know, so it's giving you, it's basically saying, look, as you're thinking about this destination that you like to go to, I'm going to sort of look ahead for you. And I'm going to figure out where you're not going to be able to get to your destination because there's a bunch of crap going on in the road. And I'm going to root you around it. That's the power of negative thinking. I don't want to just imagine success along the way. I want to imagine a positive goal and then think about all the ways that I might fail. And then I can do something about it in advance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can mitigate all those risks, I guess, along uh, in advance. And the, Yeah. I mean, if we think about something as simple as hedging. Right. So what is a hedge? It mitigates the impact of something bad happening. Like uh, if I have fire insurance, I'm, I'm trying to mitigate the financial impact of my house burning down. Mostly my house isn't going to burn down in my life. It's, it's a rare occurrence. But if it does, it's really bad. And so I want to mitigate that risk. So I buy fire insurance. I'm willing to pay a little something for that um, in order to hedge against this problem. But I can only identify the appropriate hedge for that if I identify that my house might burn down. So insurance is actually, you get to buying insurance because of negative thinking. Because, and it's not the case that if you buy fire insurance, it's going to make your house burn down. It's going to make it more likely that your house doesn't, you know, end up intact at the end of your ownership of it, which is a little bit with the power of positive, like the, if the real power of positive thinking would be like, don't buy insurance, right? <laughs> because obviously you're going to own this house and it's going to be great. Um, but you know, crap happens. That's why we have insurance. It's why if you want to have an outdoor wedding, you might want to think about having a tent just in case there's bad weather. But you know, so so that would be like a failure to, to have your outdoor wedding. But if you aren't thinking about that, then you cannot do things about it. If you want to lose weight, it's really good to think about, uh, well, I might fail because I really like the break room donuts. Then you can start saying, okay, break room donuts are a problem. How can I avoid those? Maybe I shouldn't go to the break room. Maybe I should bring healthy snacks in my bag to work. And then that will reduce the impact of the break room donut problem. You know, so I, that's why I'm like such a huge fan of negative thinking. Mm -hmm. So everything you're saying is like when you talk about those examples, like the insurance we get and people probably take those decisions on autopilot without thinking it's actually mitigating risk. And um, if they looked at other decisions through the lens of, you know, 
insurance or car insurance or whatever, they, they can probably look at it a little bit different. So it's a mindset shift in a way. Is there any, and, and we're coming near the end, is there any kind of couple of takeaways that folks can, can do, put into practice easily, quickly, that maybe will get them to make decisions faster and better? Sure. So at... Uh let me start with better and then go to faster. So, uh, and the reason why I want to get to faster last is just because I, I think that somebody listening to what we're talking about would say, oh my gosh, my decisions are going to take so long now because <laughs> I have to go yeah. and I have to look up statistics maybe and I need right, to map a, out. A like a gold sheet and things like that. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so, so the answer is uh, actually this is going to mostly speed your decisions up. So, so let me just start with better and then I'll, I'll get to faster. The single thing that you can do uh, that will make your decisions better is to actually um, make sure that you are in an open-minded way colliding with people who have different viewpoints than you do. Uh, the reason why that's the single most important thing that you can do is that the big problem of decision-making is how little we know when we go to make a decision. So, you know, what we know fits on like the head of a pin and what we don't know is like the size of the whole universe. And we're all caught up in our own biases and our own point of view and the inside view and so on and so forth. Uh, and so whenever we make a decision, there's limited information and there's a really key thing that we don't know, which is how it's going to turn out. That's a big one. But like Hillary Clinton, she doesn't know there's a polling error when she's making the decision about where she's going to campaign. And that's what most of our decisions look like. We're trying to decide where to go to college. Like think about how little, you know, at the, at the moment that you decide where you're going to go to college, you know, nothing, you've never experienced the college. Same thing with the job. You're, you know, we have limited information. So what we're always trying to do is sort of, all right, how do we fill in the gaps? How do we sort of correct the inaccuracies and the things that we think? And how do we broaden the knowledge that we have? Because at the foundation of any decision you make, like as we're talking about what are the options that we have? What are the different ways that they can turn out? What is the probability of those things occurring? How do I, how would I compare those two things? Uh, so on and so forth. It's at the base of that, it's the information that's informing that whole process. So what we want to do is improve that information. We want to fix the things that are inaccurate in the things that we believe and we want to learn new stuff. And tons of that, most of that stuff lives in other people's heads. So if I can have a real conversation with you that allows you to fill in the gaps in my knowledge and correct things and offer me different perspectives, you might view the same information that I have that may be factually correct in a totally different way that opens me up to a different perspective that's going to improve my decision making. So I've got to do that. And this is the key. Single biggest takeaway. If you want to know what somebody thinks, don't tell them what you think first. So practical. When we ask for people's opinions, we generally will offer our opinion of the thing that we're asking them for an opinion of before we get their opinion. I send you an op-ed and I want to know what you think about it. I don't just send it to you and go, hey, Rob, what do you think of this? I say, hey, Rob, what do you think of this op-ed? I think the writer's really biased and they didn't think about this perspective. And I can't believe they were missing out on this. And this is really, I'm so distressed by what they have to say. But what do you think? I just told you everything. If I'm asking your opinion of what do you think of that candidate that we just interviewed, I'll generally offer up all of my thoughts first prior to asking you. And the problem is, how am I supposed to find out what you really think now? Because I just infected you with all of my thoughts and opinions. So the best thing you can do is say, hey, we just interviewed a candidate. Rob, what do you think of them? Full stop, period. And what you're going to find is that you get a much truer view of what other people's opinions are when you do that. And that's going to improve your decision making. 
Because that collision of the places where your opinions diverge from each other is where all the interesting stuff happens. It's not particularly interesting that we both think the earth is round. It's round. What's really interesting is that you thought that candidate was amazing and I thought they were a dud. So now I want to have a conversation about it. But because of like things like confirmation bias, where we want to be colliding with information that like certifies our points of view, this is kind of a way to get to that, right? If I tell you my opinions first, it's less likely that you're going to disagree with me. So that's the biggest thing that we can do to improve our knowledge. But on the fast thing, let's move to it's really important to realize that once you understand like what a really robust sort of more deliberative, slower decision process would look like uh, that mostly you're probably making your decisions too slowly, hmm, counterintuitive. Uh, but the thing that, would, that I'm really talking about when I'm talking about, think about an option that you have and think about like, what are the things that could happen and what's good and what's bad and how likely are those to occur what I'm really saying is, what are your options and what is the impact of those options? That's what I'm asking you to think about. So you can take a step back from that and you can say, when am I facing a decision where I don't need to get it as right because I've got a lot of leeway because the impact of getting it wrong isn't going to be so big. There's two ways that we can get that. We, we can get that because the, the decision itself is relatively low impact. So that would be like... Um, Let's say that one day you uh, you're, you order something in a restaurant and you hate the dish. It's yicky. You're sad. You're probably beating yourself up about it. And maybe you spent 15 minutes trying to decide what to order on, on the restaurant, which, by the way, is the average time people spend doing that, about 14 minutes to navigate through a restaurant, through a menu. So let's say it was really bad. And then let's say I catch you in a year. So it's a year after you've had this bad meal. Mm -hmm. I say, hey, remember that meal that you had a year ago? How much did it affect how happy you were over the last year? None. Like, <laughs> right. What about the last month? How much did it affect your happiness? Like I catch you in a month. What, how much did it affect your happiness over the last month? Yeah. What about a week later? Catch you seven days later. And yet these are these you you must know these people who are like literally they're quizzing the wait staff and they're asking everybody at the table their opinion about what they're supposed to order. I mean, this is like once you sort of figured out, oh, here's some dishes that look interesting, you can flip a coin because what the this is called the happiness test. It's getting you to say, what is the long term impact of this? And if the answer is not too much, then you don't need to do all of this stuff. Just sort the thing into these options look pretty good to me. These options don't look so good to me. I'll flip a coin now. So that, that's the option. That's sort of the impact piece. Then the options piece is, is one of the problems that we have with decisions is that uh, when we choose an option, if we can't kind of unwind it, that means that we need to slow down. But there's lots and lots of decisions that we can unwind. In other words, it's the power of quitting, right? Like you don't have to read every book till the end. You don't have to finish the movie that you're watching on Netflix. You can quit your job. You can transfer schools. Uh, 
you know, when we think about like agile software development, like you're putting out little uh, bits of code that you can pull back really quickly, right? This is kind of what Jeff Bezos is talking about, like two-way door versus one-way door decisions. And there's lots of two-way door decisions. And the more that door swings both ways, the more that I can pull back and get to another option that like I rejected or maybe a new option that's come on the horizon, the faster I can go because I don't get as big a penalty for not slowing down. So it's a difference like dating versus marrying, uh, renting versus buying. Like these are all this difference between kind of one way and two way door decisions. And then I can add on top of that if I can do something in parallel. So I don't need, need to take as much time thinking about something. If I can hedge it, for example, that's just a, an example of exercising options in parallel. Um, I could, uh, I, I could uh, ask you, I can't decide between the chicken and the fish. Will you order the fish and I'll order the chicken? It's a way to do it in parallel. I can take piano and guitar at the same time. I could read two books at once. Um, so, and dating is actually exercising options in parallel as well. I can date lots of people, but I assume you're married to one. I mean, you know, or whatever your fancy is, but you know, it's a limited, it's a more limited pool um, of people that you might be married to. And so th those are all kind of in those concepts. And when you start to think about decisions that way, like if I were to apply the happiness test and think like, really, how much is this going to affect my ability to reach my goals in a year or a month or a week? And you start thinking about like, how reversible is it on the back end of this? If it's not working out, can I reverse it? Can I do the more than one thing at once? What you realize is that the majority of decisions that you make, you can actually speed up. But you have to understand what the full process looks like to understand how important these questions are about reversibility and options in order to know what type of decision you're facing. So you know when you can go fast and when you need to go slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, and I'm sure I, I definitely love the first, I love both answers, but the, the first part um, really, really hit home. And I think that'll be a big takeaway for folks, uh, for folks listening. I was going to ask one final question, and it's probably just one that came up. Um, when you're playing poker, uh, that was one type of game, I suppose you were using decision making. Do you, or have you in the, in the past kind of gambled in other ways not playing cards or i'm thinking of the u.s open tennis for example right so would you would you place a bet on who might win in in that environment and could you use your decision making to kind of narrow in on that is that anything you've kind of have a, an approach for yeah so there, there's a meta skill which you need to have which is uh when is my opinion a good opinion and when is it a poor one um so if there was some reason that I felt that I had a better opinion than the market, I would bet tennis. That would not be gambling though. So the way that I think about gambling is uh, you may or you're not, you don't really know if you have a positive expected value or a negative one, you probably have a negative one uh, and you're hoping to get lucky. So I, I don't gamble. Um, but every decision that you make is a bet. It's for the point that I said before that uh you're betting, you're essentially saying, I, I have limited resources. I can order only order one of these dishes, the chicken or the fish. Uh, which one do I think I'm winning to given the, you know, which one is going to get me more of what I want, given the money that I have to invest uh, and the time and all that, you know, I, okay, I'm going to bet that the chicken probabilistically is going to turn out better for me than the fish. Um, that would be what I would be doing on te at tennis. Like I want to invest a certain number of dollars. And I, I think, uh, you know, 
it's not just that I think Nadal is going to be team. It's that um, I have to think that whatever the market has said, they think that Nadal will win by is less than what I think they actually, he actually will win by. Now, I think that I don't have a particularly good opinion about that. So I would be unlikely to bet it. Now, there, I know analysts who do analyze tennis. And if they told me something that I thought was really reliable information, then I would bet their opinion, but I wouldn't bet mine. So I, I think this is just a really important thing to understand. It's like, you have to go through this process and try to figure out like, there's, you know, it's very different than individual decisions. Like when you're investing in a market, it's pretty liquid information environment, right? So there's lots of experts with really, really good opinions. And one of the things you want to pull yourself back from is overconfidence, which is somehow you think that you have a better opinion than all these people who are trading against each other in the market, which is why, you know, indexing, you know, indexing and that kind of stuff is a reasonable solution to that, where you know that the, if we thought about base rates again, that the market tends to go up. And so you can just sort of ride the upward climb without necessarily generating any alpha. If you just ride the beta, you're fine. So I, I tend to sort of try to decide, like, am I in a situation where it's just beta or am I in a situation where I think that I have some informational advantage uh, that would allow me to generate alpha? Um, and I try to really have keep that meta skill in mind. Mm. Very interesting answer and uh, related to tennis is always good as well. So, look, we've gone through an hour and it's been a fascinating listen and thanks for taking the time out to do that as as is the case in the end of a podcast it's it's over to you to kind of give a call out about the book when it's coming out how people can uh purchase it and i will encourage them to do so because i'm sure we've just scratched the surface here oh my gosh thank you um so let's see uh you can follow me on twitter at annie duke you can go to annieduke.com to find out where to order the book it's available at the usual places but also on my website, there's a contact form. And I have to say, like, I, the, some of the, you know, some of my biggest moments of learning are from hearing from people who have interacted with my work in some way, either a podcast or they've read my work or they've seen a talk of mine. And interestingly enough, when, when I think about why did I end up writing how to decide, you know, after having, you know, put out thinking in bets a couple years ago, it's really through conversations with my readers because I had all these people like, you know, they were talking to me about thinking in bets, which is really this idea of like, you really have to lean into uncertainty. And uh, I, they kept asking me like, but how would I make a decision? Like I get like, there's, you know, there's uncertainty and your, you know, decision quality isn't so related to outcome quality. And we need to recognize that. But then they were, but how, how would I make a decision? I thought, oh, you know, I kind of, I guess I sort of left all that on the table and maybe I should give people some really practical advice about how you can improve your decision-making. And that absolutely came out of conversations with readers and people who had listened to me. So please, please, please use that contact form. I love to hear from people who listen to me. I am not a hundred percent at replying, but I'm probably 90. I really try. And, you know, sometimes life gets in the way and I don't get to somebody but it doesn't mean that I don't care about you. And I, I really do try to respond to everybody who writes me. So please write me. Um, the other place that I would love people to go explore is the Alliance for Decision Education. So I co-founded a nonprofit. And what we're trying to do there is bring decision education into K through 12 education. So there's been a real sea change 
in uh, education with sort of thinking more about like 21st century skills and the whole child. And uh, one of the ways that we've seen that is in social emotional learning, which now is, is part of most schools uh, curriculum. And we're trying to do the same thing with decision education. You know, and the argument there is that people really need these skills. They, they need, and as you would say, also this competency of being able to think about their own decisions and how would I make a good one and how would I make a, you know, what would be a bad decision and what are my habits and how might I change those? And um, this is all kind of under this rubric of decision education. And when you think about something like thinking fast and slow, which is kind of like in terms of Kahneman, like that, you know, big volume of this work that's been done in behavioral economics and behavioral psychology in general over decades, we haven't seen that filter down into K through 12 education that well. And this is what we're trying to do. And, you know, better decisions lead to better lives, which we think lead to a better society. And perhaps we should be teaching less trigonometry and more decision skills, you know? So um, I would love it if people would check out the Alliance for decision education. If it's something that you agree with, you know, hopefully you can communicate with us and support us in you know, whatever way you, you can, we have a petition that you can sign. You could promote us on social media. You could tell your friends about us, whatever. Um, but I'm super passionate about that. No, it's definitely coming across there. And I, one can attest to you responding uh, to your contact form because that's how we got in touch. I think I emailed about a year or so ago on you about the book coming out. So that's how we're talking. So that's brilliant. And uh, I couldn't agree more about, you know, developing the emotional skills um, and competencies in, in our youth um, instead of just learning things off, you know, and uh, having brain memory memory exams at a later point. So I'm, I'm with you there. Um, brilliant. Thanks so much, Annie. And best of luck and best of success look is a good word there in in, uh, in the new book uh, i hope it goes down really well and um, i'm hoping that some of the listeners uh, go out and get it when it comes out too oh my gosh thank you so much i really appreciate that yeah great conversation thanks so much thank you hey folks thanks so much for listening to the show if you enjoyed it could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Annie will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy 
but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.